David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the Ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Our second reading today is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, good morning, everyone. After we've had that wonderful time hearing from Spira and CJ, I have to say, I wonder whether it would be appropriate for me to say, God is good. This might be a thing. It is a thing. It's the way it is. It's a good opportunity for us to acknowledge it. Hey, um, I wonder whether you're looking at this and wondering what this is for. A bit out of season, perhaps. Is your family one that likes to have crackers around the Christmas dinner table? Do you do that thing where you cross your arms and pull them, or you, when you pull a cracker? Somebody jumped this morning when that happened. Do you like the things you find inside? What is there? It's a little little treat. There's a little little Santa there. It's a joke in here somewhere. This is what I'm looking for. Now, tell me, are you the sort of person who finds one of these and goes, "Yes, this is the moment." Or are you one of those people who goes, just please don't make me wear it? I know that for some of you, this is really exciting. <laughs> I'd never imagine getting a round of applause for putting a hat on. For some of us, um, you're just waiting for me to take it off. Now, um, God had given the crown to Saul. And then he passed the crown to David. We're looking at Israel's history. We're picking up again in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And um, not a paper crown, but a real crown. That is real authority over his precious people. And you remember last week how we were reminded that um, Saul, on the face of it, as we read his story, uh, seemed pretty inept at points, seemed to do the wrong thing quite a lot. And we were kind of glad to be rid of him when, when the crown went to David. Um, but actually, as we read the story of David, although he seems to start pretty well, um, a lot of his words and thoughts and actions go downhill pretty fast as well. But we can learn from David, and we can learn from David, I suppose thinking of him as a, as a small K king, as a small M messiah. Of course, we can learn a great deal more from the one whom David called king, that is God who fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus, who is I, the one I would say is the big K king, the big M Messiah. And so the big idea today is um, 
that you and I tend to like wearing our paper crowns, don't we? But actually, the Lord Jesus wears the crown. And so the best thing that we can do is to take these off and render them to him. And so that's going to be something I want to have in in the back of our minds um, as we spend this time together. Now, we've read from God's Word. It's really important that um, we capture God's mind on the matter. So I'm going to pray that, um, that he would help us as we read through. I think this is quite a difficult text, actually, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, if you are followers of the Bible Project and enjoyed watching the overview of the books of Samuel, you'll notice that uh, they only gave it one sentence. And I thought to myself, well, that's helpful, isn't it? So um, I'm going to pray. <laughs> Father God, um, sometimes we come to passages of Scripture that seem uh, tricksy or unwieldy, but we're so thankful that all Scripture, every word of the Bible is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness and for correction and rebuke, so that uh, the man or woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Father, as we've sung and as we pray now, we ask that your spirit would be at work amongst us, that we would surrender ourselves to him, and that we would not only think your thoughts after you, but that we would live it out and embody what it means to share in the crown of glory which the Lord Jesus himself wears. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A bit of a structure today, three points. Um, The first idea will be the first half of 2 Samuel 6, uh, delight and dread. And then the second half of 2 Samuel 6, humility and hubris. And then finally, we'll look at that wonderful passage from Colossians 1 and discover he who wears the crown. So firstly, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, delight and dread. God is God. God is the true and living God, and he has revealed himself. We see his fingerprints across creation. We have his word that's preserved for us in the Bible that was spoken through the fathers and the prophets, but then finally and fully we see God in the person of his son Jesus. We don't live in a godless world, although sometimes it may feel like it. We don't live in a world of a pantheon of small g gods. We don't live in a world in which the universe will have its say or karma will ensure that we get our comeuppance. We don't live in a world in which our own idea trumps the reality of God. God is God. And we are told in his word that his enemies should dread him and his friends may delight in him. And we may, as friends of God, delight in God. But we're also wise to take a reverential posture because he is a holy God. And the only reason we can approach him is because of the cost of the life of his son. And so as we look at these words where David again, bringing back the ark, assembled all the choice men in Israel, 30,000 of them, and they set the ark of God on a new cart and it's transported from one place to another. Ultimately, David's destination is the city he built, Jerusalem or Zion as he named it. There's a real sense of excitement because this is kind of the counterpoint to what happened at the beginning of 1 Samuel where the ark had been stolen away by the Philistines. And the ark is a box. I remember the uh, story of a parent once upon a time given a box by her daughter for Christmas. 
she took the box and unwrapped the ribbon and opened it up and looked inside and said, it's empty. And her little daughter looked crestfallen and she looked inside and said to her mother, oh, but it was full of kisses. They must have flown away. The ark was just a box, but within it was contained, if you like, the kisses of God, the love of God, the expression of his promises. Indeed, the very word of God established on the tablets were in there with the jar of manna, the confirmation of his faithfulness to his promises and Aaron's staff which budded. And there, not only do we have the promises of God, but the ark of this covenant promise was the very dwelling place of God, his presence, what was described as the mercy seat, the Hashekinah, where the cherubim was set to cover the glory of God. There, though not visible, was the assurance of the presence of God. And so this glorious moment, this symbolic and yet real moment of the ark coming back to be amongst the people of God was a great reminder that God was with them. And so a time for delighted celebration. Verses five to eight, we see how God's people celebrated before the Lord with song and with music and with instruments. And here you have it, just imagine in your mind's eye, the ark on a new cart being drawn by oxen and as it's trundling along, it hits an unexpected rock and you begin to see the cart topple and the ark's there and you're like, who's gonna grab the ark? And then you go, huzzah! There he is, and he puts his hand up, and he stops the ark from falling. And we all wipe our brows and go, phew, that could have been an awful accident. What a hero, right? Apparently not. Because as soon as Azar put his hand up, the Lord's anger burned against him, and God struck him dead on the spot <laughs> for his irreverence, for the the ark of God was the presence of God, and the presence of God was the presence of a holy God, unapproachable. It's not for a common man to put his hand upon the ark of God, and God killed Uzzah. And we go to ourselves, poor Uzzah. That doesn't seem very fair of God, does it? unless we consider the fact that it's quite possible that Uzzah immediately went to be in the presence of God and was probably a whole lot happier at that point. But the thing was that his death was avoidable. In fact, his death was not his fault at all, was it? Who's responsible for his death? David. But David had been given strict instructions on how the ark was to be treated and for some reason, David had not inquired of the Lord. The ark had to be taken by those who had been ceremonially cleansed in the Levitical line of the priesthood, and they were to take two very specific poles and run them through the rings of the ark according to God's design. Not on a new cart, not drawn by oxen. Ironically, that was all the rage, the fashion of the Philistines, because that's exactly how they took the ark away. How odd that David would choose to bring it back in such a way. I think David forgot to read his Torah. He forgot to inquire of the Lord. And this is baffling. I've got no good answer for this. 
Because God had spent time investing in Torah and seeking good counsel and praying to the Lord innumerable times over the accounts of Samuel. In fact, we read eight times in Samuel 1, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that God had been, uh, sorry, David had been a dedicated man of prayer and he had not on this occasion done so. And so there were very real consequences for his oversight through negligence, through maybe a little bit of hubris. We don't know, we're not told, but the outcome was that Uzzah died, a dreadful death. In fact, David came to the point where he feared, verse nine, he feared, verse nine, the Lord that day. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He he takes a decision that he's not gonna take the ark to the city after all. We don't know whether this is a moment of weighty repentance, a king's decision, costing the life of his subject and he's filled with remorse. We don't know whether he was really fearful of God in a fresh way and and fearful of the power of the God he served. But what we do know is that he decided that the ark could not come to the city, so where does he put it? Well, he goes and finds Obed-Edom, the Gittite, who's probably a Philistine. Seems a bit of a weird thing to do, right? (laughs) Here's the ark of the Lord. It's a tremendous thing of dangerous power. Indiana Jones and uh, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark knew what to do with it. They put it away so it would never be found. Rather, David says, let's go put it in Obed-Edom's house. And you can imagine Obed-Edom and his family sat there for dinner, you know, chatting about the day and looking over into the corner where the ark of God was, going, this is just not boding well for us, is it? There's a mighty, powerful presence in this room. They would be fearful, right? But no, as it turns out, have a look. The ark of the Lord remained in his house for three months and suddenly Obed-Edom was getting on a lot better with his family. The kids were a lot better well behaved. In fact, he just had a raise that week and he'd been promoted. I don't know, but you know, what was happening was that God was blessing the whole family. Now something shifts here. <laughs> this dangerous ark, safekeeping with the, the Philistine Obed-Edom and then the report comes back to David and David says, um, what are we gonna do? We're gonna take it back. But just before we go there, I wonder if we've got a couple of lessons to learn from uh, this situation. I think, firstly, David did not inquire of the Lord. He had, for so long, been inquiring of the Lord. He'd been a guy who'd gone to the promises of God. He'd been a guy who had been prayerful to his God, and he had been a guy who spent time with the people of God, seeking to know the will of God and shape his responses. And I wonder whether we, too, might be reminded about the importance of going to the promises of God regularly and frequently. To go to the person of God through the Lord Jesus Christ prayerfully and to seek counsel from one another and indeed remembering that we now are the very presence of God in this world by the power of his spirit who indwells us. That our posture might be one of delighting to be the children of God, but also having reverence and awe and dread for the God who has laid down the life of his son to make that possible. A few thoughts to take home with us. Well, my second point is humility and hubris. Uh, Just as the Lord God brought low the Philistines and now brought low his people, there is this shift where now David has got a second chance. David does things the right way this time, and he does it 
before the Lord. Have a look with me at verses 13 to 16. You see, here we go. David is um, walking with the ark, this time advancing six steps, and then according to the word of God, sacrificing an ox and sacrificing a calf. The sacrificial system has been reinstated. It's all appropriate in terms of ritual to come into the very presence of God. And then can you imagine another six steps and a sacrifice? I don't think it was every six steps. Like they would have been there a very long time taking the ark back to uh, Zion. But notice what David is doing. He's not just walking along with some kind of ritualistic grin. He is wholeheartedly dancing before the Lord. Here is the king. He's wearing a linen ephod, which was the sign of a priest. And here he is unashamedly celebrating. Do you ever have those moments when you just get captured again by your first love of the Lord Jesus? You might be singing a song in the shower and suddenly you realize you've been singing for 10 minutes and the volume's got up and up. Or maybe you just got that spring in your step as you're walking along the beach and you think how beautiful it is, Lord God, this creation that you've given to us. Thank you for this glorious reminder of your presence. David here is, is wholehearted in his celebration. And yet there's one person who feels very much on the outer. Saul's daughter, Michal, looking down on her husband, King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. It's a really tricky relationship, this, isn't it? Michal was the daughter of Saul, the murdered king. Michal was the sister of Jonathan, the murdered heir to the throne. She despised David. And we don't know whether David knew this, but we are told she does not share his joy. And boy, in a minute, she's going to tell him. But let's, uh, the camera comes back down to what's going on with the ark, and we see these blessed people. There's David celebrating, and he's bringing the ark in, and he's uh, doing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings in accordance with the ritualistic law, law the, um, uh, ceremonial law. And, um, and then he says, uh, I'm going to bless the people of God. Uh, David here shares the blessings of God with his people. And um, we see him distribute here a loaf of bread and a date cake or possibly a piece of meat. We, we can't really work out the translation here. And a raisin cake. So, I mean, that's a full meal, right, for every family. Every family's going home to their home, well fed in the name of the Lord God. And God's king, small k, David, shares God's blessings with his people. And it's a little sign, isn't it, of course, all this sacrificing that's going on. For us, we don't do this sort of thing, do we? We don't have to do a sacrifice week in, week out, day in, day out, because the one final sacrifice has been made for the, by the Lord Jesus on our behalf. And it's a good reminder to us, I think, as well, that we have that blessing of the forgiveness of our sins that we might be at home with God and amongst his people. Blessed people, gather together here today. But there are days, aren't there, when there's some inconsistencies. Because we see the blessed home. David returned home to bless his household, verse 20, and it's not as blessed as we would like. I have to say, as your minister, and indeed I think I speak on behalf of the whole ministry team, we really value 
your prayers for us. Because just like you, sometimes we forget that Jesus wears the crown and we can be inclined to want to put on our own little crowns, do things our way, be our own bosses in our own households. Many years ago, a former minister and friend said to me as the ministry day ends, coming home from a long day, pray, because this is where your ministry begins. And it's hard, isn't it, seeing David move into his home where he is to be the source of blessing and immediately he's met by Saul's daughter, Michal, who comes out to say to him, oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, exposing himself in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. And we think to, him, we think to ourselves, well, there's no denying it, is there? This is a really broken home. We can't speculate overly about what's going on here because we're not told. But what we do know is that Michal was given to David as a trophy wife when David first killed a bunch of Philistines. She was given over by her father, former King Saul. She was a lady of dignity, and it's quite possible she's seen quite an undignified performance by this former shepherd boy. But what we do see is that these words are from a place of bitterness, and it is not a blessed home. And I know that for some of us, it's hard at home. For some of us, we have spouses or members of our family who do not know the Lord Jesus. And so sometimes when we come home, we're full of joy in the Lord, they just don't seem to understand. In fact, sometimes they might have a bit of a harsh word. I mean, that is the experience for some amongst us, isn't it? But David replied to Michal, I was dancing before the Lord. I mean, he puts the dagger in here. <laughs> The Lord who chose me over your father and whole family and appointed me as the ruler over Israel. I'm not sure that was the most diplomatic thing to say to his wife in that moment. But he does say that he is prepared to lower himself even beyond this in order to celebrate the God whom he knows. And I think it's a kind of hard thing to take away. So I thank you for your prayers for us and I want you to know that I, we pray for you as well that there would be consistency between our life here and our life at home and our life with the Lord. And even when we're imperfect, and we all are, the Lord is the one who offers perfection and redemption and growth. That we might grow up into Jesus, that we might keep pressing into his promises and develop our family cultures so that our homes would look increasingly more like they honor the one who wears the crown. And this is my final point that I want to leave us with. It is Jesus who wears the crown. See, David was the little K king of Israel and he was imperfect and we find solidarity with him. But we also know that Jesus is the king of kings with a big K and we find assurance in relationship with him. And we're coming up to an election. And we have, by my experience, good faithful, hard-working politicians in our local area. The great opportunity to come along and quiz them and explore with them, but they're not perfect. And in fact, we've got an AGM coming up as well, and we'll have the opportunity to elect wardens and parish councillors and nominators and synod reps, and for the most part, I'm sure, will be good, godly, faithful, prayerful folk, but they're not perfect. 
And even as we see at the moment what's going on, some of our own leaders amongst the bishops and clergy of the Anglican Church over in the Church of England, at the moment there's a synod going on and there's some very weird decisions going on that do not align with the Word of God and the Lordship of Christ. And I look at these men and women and go to myself, I think this is happening, this, just this little moment where they want to put on their paper crowns and say this is how things should be and have forgotten for the moment that actually Jesus wears the crown, and I wonder if you would commit to praying for them as well. Because whenever anybody seeks to move a family or a church or a community forward, yep, some will come on board and some will take their time and some will change ships. But the Lord Jesus wears the crown because he is God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. And whatever your journey and whatever your stage of life and wherever you're at, know this, he is the king. You might be a little king or a little queen in your own area of life, but fully and finally, he's the one who has loved you and he's the one who laid down his life for you and he says to you and I, like, just like the compassion children whom we sponsor, come to me like a little child. Jesus says, come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest and assurance because our deepest need is only met in Jesus. And we are his church. Jesus is the head of the church, verse 18 head of the body, firstborn from among the, uh, um, sorry, firstborn from the, from the dead, and he's at the beginning, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. There's no doubt about who Jesus is, and there's no doubt about who wears the crown in the body of his church. And finally, we're reminded in these last verses, 21 to 23, that you and I are servants of the gospel, this gospel that from once we were alienated and hostile in our minds because of our sins, but he has reconciled us now and we are his people and we now have the privilege of knowing Jesus and my word, isn't it life-changing? And we now, like Paul, have the privilege of being able to share that gospel in what we say and what we pray and what we do. And so I guess in conclusion, as we move into the week ahead, can I encourage us to have in our mind's eye the crown that belongs to Jesus? Because what he said to us is you get to share in my crown, in my glory. He suffered a crown of thorns while he was here, so don't expect it to be an easy ride. It's going to get bumpy, and there are times when it's hard, but be assured that the day will come that you will share in my crown of glory. And especially when you feel like popping on your little paper crown and thinking about in this bit of life or that bit of life, I want to be the one who takes control. By God's grace, may it be that you and I would inquire of him, inquire of his word and inquire of his will, that we would pray to him and seek him to be the one that would transform our hubris or our pride into humility. And I imagine, rather like me, you have to do this frequently and regularly, and day in and day out, and sometimes you feel like you're popping a prayer up every minute. But that's the way it is, and it will be until he returns. 
and what a privilege it is. So let me, if I may, lead us in prayer and uh, we'll finish this time together. Father God, we thank you that Jesus is the one who wears the crown. And Father God, we recognize that he has given us a place in his eternal kingdom. Indeed, in a manner of speaking, he has placed his crown on our heads. And he said, yes, this crown will be one that includes thorns in this lifetime, but it will be glorious and I have a place for you. And so as servants of the gospel, may we proclaim the hope of the gospel as it is that when we're tempted to be little kings and queens, we would remember to whom we belong and come as little children, delighting in his promises and his love and throwing our paper crowns before the one who wears the crown forever. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.